0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies, a podcast channel of New Books Network. I'm your host, Schneer Zalman Newfield. New York City's Lower East Side has witnessed a severe decline in its Jewish population in recent decades. Yet every morning in the big room of the city's oldest yeshiva, students still gather to study the Talmud beneath the great arched windows facing out onto East Broadway. In yeshiva days, learning on the Lower East Side published by Princeton University Press in 2020, Jonathan Boyarin presents a uniquely personal account of the year he spent as both a student and observer at Masifta Tefaris Yerushalayim, and a poignant chronicle uh, of a side of Jewish life that outsiders rarely see. Boyarin explores the yeshiva's relationship with the neighborhood, the city, and Jewish and American culture more broadly, and brings vividly to life, its routines, rituals, and rhythms. Jonathan Boyarin is the Diane G. and Thomas A. Mann Professor of Modern Jewish Studies at Cornell University. His books include Jewish Families, Mornings at the Stanton Street uh, Shul, A Summer on the Lower East Side, and The Unconverted Self, Jews, Indians, and Identity of Christian Europe. Thank you, Jonathan, so much for joining us.
0: Thanks for the conversation. I'm looking forward to it very much, Salman.
1: I'm glad. So I wanted to start off by asking you uh, to talk about your background. I always ask uh, the uh, guests to talk about their background and what brought them to uh, produce the work that we're discussing, and in your case, given this particular uh, uh, book, it's especially uh, a relevant question. So, tell us a little bit about your background and what brought you to to write this book. I, I think the first um,
0: the first part of the answer is the same as I would give if you were if we were talking about my previous book about the Lower East Side, mornings at the Stanton Street Shoal, because. The first part of the story about how I came to spend time at the Yeshiva on East Broadway, for me, has to do with how I came to be a resident of the Lower East Side. I wasn't born there, like a lot of people who still live in the Jewish community on the Lower East Side, and like a lot of the fellows who still study in the Big Best Medrash at MTJ. I came from a Jewish chicken farming community in Farmingdale, New Jersey, and not necessarily from a particularly observant family, but certainly, uh, certainly there, there there was there was yeshiva background. If you went back a, a, a generation or two, I talk about that a little bit in the book. Uh, and my idea of shul was formed in my early childhood by the very Hamish informal yet traditional services in the Jewish community center in Farmingdale, New Jersey. And I didn't really want to go to shul once we left that in my still relatively early childhood until I was on my own and moved to New York City and started graduate school and found myself um, a cheap apartment on the Lower East Side, which was the first time I'd felt at home since I left Farmingdale, and I said, well, when I find a shul that feels like Farmingdale, uh, I'll start going to shul again, and someone I knew through Yiddish circles, somebody involved in rescuing Jewish material culture on the Lower East Side said, you know, I know a place where they'll really welcome you. They need (laughs) you, and they'll welcome you, Uh, and that was the 8th Street shul, believe it or not on East 8th Street between Avenue B and C, that's east of Tompkins Square Park, and we're talking about 1979, 1980, when half of the buildings on those blocks were uh, were bombed out, essentially. Uh, the, not just there weren't many Jews there, there weren't many people living there at all, and some hardy souls who had moved down to Grand Street and didn't want to give up their shul. Um, Kept the place going, and were indeed happy to have um, a guy with a ponytail walk in and count for the minion. And in, in some ways, that was that was the first time that I became aware of the ways that the the, the lower Lower East Side Orthodox community is is tolerant stretches itself in an unusually Pretentious and welcoming way. Unusually pretentious or unpretentious? Unpretentious, unpretentious. Yeah, I mean it's it's so unpretentious. It's almost <laughs> pretentious. <laughs> to, to channel Jackie Mason for a second, um, and then and then um, in the early eighties, early my wife Alyssa Sampson and I went to Paris for a year, where I uh, I, I did fieldwork for my dissertation in anthropology which was a study of elderly Polish Jews in Paris. And these were not religious people. They were Tafka not. These were mostly ex-communists, Yiddish speakers, amazing people with incredible life stories. And I admired them tremendously. Um, But one thing I noticed was that they had not been able to pass much on to their children. Their children were not part of a community in the way they had been. And even the Yiddish culture that they that informed them, that was so rich, I understood was rich in part because it was informed by the traditional Jewish culture that they were rebelling against. And when Alyssa and I moved back to the Lower East Side, I at least, I think she shared this, had some sense that um, you can't really pass on Jewishness without some everyday frame of this is what Jews do and this is what Jews don't and we also realized that to the extent there was still public Jewish life on the Lower East Side, it was sustained in the Orthodox institutions. So I started going back to Shul again. But I also had a feeling, and as 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 you probably know, Zalman, I also have a big brother who's a big Talmud Chachem, and he was... He was becoming a professor of Talmud, and I was becoming a Yiddishist. And there is a certain hierarchy of prestige in Jewish studies between those, uh, between those fields. And I didn't want to be an Amaritz. Am- am- and uh, just like somebody had told me, hey, there's a shul where you'll fit in, somebody told me, hey, there's a, there's a class for adult beginners at the Yeshiva on East Broadway. MTJ. So I first walked in there uh, probably one day in 1984. And for about three years, most most weekday mornings, Monday through Thursday, I spent two hours with two young rabbis and um, Yossi Rosenbaum and Shmuel Daitel, And one of them taught us Chumash for an hour, and one of them taught us Gemara for an hour. And we were in the best Medrash with everybody else. Uh, Somehow, it was this little little cure of you. It was a cure of table, right? (laughs) Uh, But without the heavy-handed philosophizing or moralizing, we were brought in to learn. And and, and that's what it's still like at MTJ. Anybody can come in and sit down and learn. and then I did lots of other things. I uh, eventually I went to law school. I was I was in an office for a number of years. I was teaching out of town. And then, as as happens to um, people who have the old fashioned kind of academic career, eventually it was my term my my turn to have a year of leave. That was in two thousand twelve not an academic year, uh, a, a spring semester followed by a fall semester. I had a couple of projects that I promised to do during those semesters. They were well in hand before 2012 started. And so I found myself in shul on the Lower East Side in the Bialystoker shul, talking to uh, Rabbi Yusacher Ginsburg, who appears under a pseudonym in the book. Uh, my friend and uh, saying I had a that I had a year coming up, a year's leave, and I wasn't sure exactly how I was going to spend it. First thing he said was, "Wow, I'm in the wrong job. They're giving you a year, <laughs> 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 paying you for a year, and you don't have to work." <laughs> and then he said, "Why don't you go to the to to the Russian And I immediately said, "That's a great idea." So after. 25 years in which I stepped into MTJ maybe half a dozen times. Uh, I ended up spending that year in the Rosh Hashivah Sheer. I was introduced to one of the young rabbis um, who learns with college students. I guess they thought that, that uh, you know, I'd be a good fit for him. And I, I learned with him and he introduced me to a couple of, I would say, the leading Talmudim in Reb David's stu- students in Re- in of Reb David's uh, morning
1: Talmud lesson. So, Who, so you mentioned Reb David. So you mentioned before the Rosh Yeshiva, the right. leader of the Yeshiva. Right. What is the name of the leader of the Yeshiva, and and tell us a little bit about him?
0: Sure. Um. He, he, his his name now is is. Is Rabdavid Feinstein of blessed memory, and as you know, uh, we just lost him less than a week ago. And and uh, even though I'm not there, uh, I'm I'm connected and I'm hearing and and people and this is not a young man, but th- the sense of loss is immense, um, and something that one would not guess at from walking into the yeshiva or or seeing the very intimate room in which he taught his his Talmud classes um, Reb David was the the son of Reb Moshe Feinstein really one the, of the
1: the, the major ultra-Orthodox uh, um, uh, um, uh, legal decisors of the second half of the 20th century in America.
0: Absolutely, except I'm going to take a bit of issue with the term ultra-Orthodox, because I th- I think part of the spirit of MTJ is we're not mo- modern Orthodox, we're not ultra-Orthodox, we're doing it the right way. <laughs> <laughs> right' <laughs> we're following, Rebosha. this is Orthodox. we're following the halacha you know, we're not trying to be too modern and we're not trying to show everybody how how from we are. This is how we do it. Um, right, right? Uh, a, a different kind of traditionalism.
1: Sure, sure I think yeah well yeah.
0: and 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 uh, Rebdovid who is referred to as the Roshi Shiva, who took over for um, almost 35 years after his father's passing and whom I call in the book Rebbi because that's also what we called him, um, was a not a charismatic person but a very, very much beloved person, a very available person. And, um, not an author of uh, of long learned commentaries, but somehow he achieved the, the status of the ultimate decider, the ultimate posik on major topics in Jewish law for the United States. And once again, as I had in the mid-1980s, I found a remarkably congenial um, milieu for me as somebody who was only slightly less illiterate than I had been in the mid-1980s, to sit and learn with guys who were doing it full-time and had been for years. And I will add, and this is not, not a gratuitous thing to add, because it wouldn't necessarily be the case in other yeshivas, they thought it was cool that a professor was coming in to study with them. Um, they, they didn't. They, they, they were. I, I never got the sense of you know what are you doing here, what do you really think? Um, in 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 MTJ, they call me the professor. And I tried to get them to, except except for uh, one friend whom I call Nasano in the book, and as you noticed, uh, he's the one who calls me Yoines and Aaron. And I really liked that, so that's how I came to the place.
1: Right. So, uh, spe- you 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 uh, touched on a drop about the the kind of uh, ethos in this particular yeshiva on the Lower East Side that you spent this time um, uh, participating at, and um, if you could tell us, uh, in in what ways do you think that um, that the the students uh, uh, the members of this yeshiva were similar and in what ways do you think that they were really different than the typical yeshiva students you would find in an Orthodox or ultra-orthodox yeshiva
0: well first of all they're uh, I mean beyond a certain minimum uh, which might be 18 19 years they are all male I mean thats it's the it's like any Orthodox yeshiva in that respect and that that's a complex issue in itself of course. Um, but they are of all ages. That means that there are uh young men who are of college age who might be doing it for a couple of years before they get married. There are a few men in their 30s and forties who have decided that this is what they're doing with their life, who draw a very, very modest stipend from. The uh, from the institution, and honestly, because I didn't ask and I didn't do interviews and I was trying not to be too nosy, I can guess at how their families survive, but I don't always know. I know that in some cases, this is not atypical for the yeshiva world. uh, It's common for for their wives to have certain professional jobs, uh, speech therapist, physical therapist, as well as taking care of the household, raising the children. Right. So the contribution of women is immense here and and, and, and shouldn't be um, shouldn't be underplayed, even though to some extent uh, I have been fairly accused of underplaying it in the book itself because the women are not there. Um, but there are also people who come in for a couple hours a day and then there's another professor. Right. He comes in in the morning and then he goes up to Baruch College to teach uh, computer computing for accountant students. Uh, there are people who have jobs as mashkichim and, um, or or teachers at MTJ who can come in for a couple of hours. And there are people who are retired from a range of jobs. In some ways, yes, there is a kolo.
1: Meaning a, a program for people who are already married um, uh, uh, and then uh, continuing their their uh, rabbinic uh, um, learning uh, after marriage.
0: That's right. That's right. And some people are doing it indefinitely. And there are always a few uh, few men there who are studying for smicha, rabbinical ordination. Uh, last few years, it's been a two or three lovely young Bratslavers chassidim. Who come in from Brooklyn to study in Yiddish, which is fairly unusual at, at MTJ, but they just they just fit in beautifully there uh, somehow. Um, and but I I would almost say if it weren't if it didn't somehow detract from the honor of the place, which of which I'm very protective. I'd almost be tempted to say this is the community-based medrash. This is the community study house on the Lower East Side, more than a separate institution with, um, you know, with imaginary walls around it.
1: Aha, aha, and and you you talk about the fact, and you sort of just alluded to it that. In the in this yeshiva, unlike in a typical yeshiva, there isn't one uh, program of study. So you just mentioned that some of the people who join the, the the study hall are learning to, uh, for smicha. They're learning for rabbinic ordination. They're not even learning uh, the typical uh, texts of the Talmud. And even when it comes to the text of the Talmud, different students are reading different books. Right. They're, Right, and this is not typical in a in a, in a in a typical. That's right. That's right. We should we
0: should explain further that that in a in a typical orthodoxy shiva, if it's uh, let's say if it's big enough that, that 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 there are ranked classes, then uh then at least everybody in a class will be studying the same text, and will be um keying their individual or paired study, which is how they spend most of the day. Of an hour or two, lecture that is given by a, a more experienced uh, reader in that particular text. At MTJ, under under Reb David, um, there were a number of people who would attend his his lessons, his shir, and would spend a good part of the day preparing for his shir and then reviewing. What he had just said, um, but other people are studying on their own. Other people are studying in pairs or small groups. There's a range of uh, any 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 uh, Talmudic text is fair game. Any recognized major uh, early modern to modern legal code or commentary is is fair game. and study groups kind of form and dissolve naturally
1: right. so this is a the, very different system
0: <laughs> it's a it's a it's a it's a very different system i I, I recount in the book uh, stories that were told to me about. That when attempts were made to sort of regularize it and have everybody studying the same and the person who told me said it lasted for a couple of months and then it kind <laughs> of <broke down." laughs> you know? and and, and I, I'm gonna I'm gonna say this in public for the first time. Um a a a neighbor who was uh very observant in both senses, right? A good analyst <laughs> and, 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 and and a knowledgeable and practicing Jew said to me, uh, and I've phrased it this way: there are some, there are some yeshivas that we call kiruv yeshivas, right, where um, where the object is to draw in unaffiliated Jews and make them feel more warmer toward the tradition and more knowledgeable and. And and become resources for the community, to, to enlarge the community. There are other yeshivas where uh, it, it's, it's not a nice way to put it, but, but where they almost have their brand, right? Where especially a prospective uh, in-laws family would have a sense of what they're getting. If, you know, if you say he's a Chafetz Chaim guy, he's a Torah Das guy.
1: Right, Someone who went to a particular ultra-Orthodox Shiva.
0: Right. With a certain style, a certain level of orthodoxy, a certain range, uh, MTJ isn't like that. And what my friend said was, at MTJ, the people are there because they want to be learning in a best Medrash. And I think that actually captures a lot of what's special about it also.
1: Right. All right. And, and related to this, you mentioned in the book that uh, I got the impression that many, if not most or all of the members of the study hall at at this yeshiva uh, were sort of older than the typical yeshiva student. And at the same time, it seemed like many of them were more worldly than the typical yeshiva student. You recount that they talked about movies or popular movies or books like The Third Man, and they also... uh, had a less of a I don't know a tolerance or inclination to support some of the more recent stringencies in halakha, in Jewish law, uh, for instance, uh, in terms of just how strict they were about the gender segregation uh, when there were public events separating men and women, that they tended to be less severe than is common these days in uh, orthodox or ultra orthodox circles, and I'm wondering, in what ways did you feel that this, both the age and the kind of um, the veltanshang or the the orientation of the people at the yeshiva, in what sense did you feel that it impacted their approach to learning, their approach to the Talmud, their their interpretation of the Talmud, and so on?
0: It's it's a really really great question. Um, you know, I just, I, just to expand on what you were very aptly summarizing from the book about the mood of the place, um, I'm sure you noticed the one, one illustration I have in the book, right? There is one figure, it's labeled figure one, right? it has no caption, uh, and, and I took this photograph and I'm not a great photographer, but I couldn't resist, one of the, um, in terms of a, in terms of a a, masura, a a a a tradition and a sense of what is special about this place and where it comes from, a lot of that comes from uh, from the image and the aura of Reb Moshe Feinstein, right? Our late Reb Dovitz father, father, um, who issued a number of uh, authoritative and radical rulings at the same time. Um my, my rabbi at the community synagogue on 6th Street a number of years ago, Rabbi uh, Ari Berkowitz, Avi Berkowitz, sorry, said to me, you know, the definition of a Haredi Jew, or ultra-Orthodox is the term you're using, is somebody who accepts all of Reb Moshe Feinstein's stringent rulings and none of his lenient rulings. <laughs> And the definition of a modern Orthodox Jew—you can get this, guess this—is someone who accepts none of Reb Moshe Feinstein's stringent <laughs> rulings and all of his lenient rulings. I,
1: I, I, that's really phenomenal. I just want to interject that I remember explicitly, I grew up in the Lubavitch Hasidic community uh-huh. in in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, and I distinctly remember uh, people, rabbis in the community, saying uh, when. Um, the, the the status of Moshe Feinstein came up. That they said he was a tremendous Jew, a tremendous uh, you know scholar and 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 uh, um, halachic uh, authority. But we don't accept any of his kolos. We don't accept any of the of the leniencies that he introduced, whether about you know in terms of Jews uh, uh, using chal of akum or, or, or non chal of Israel milk that's not specifically handled by Jews, which is a big issue in the in the uh, Orthodox world, and and many other things. We totally accept Rabbi Feinstein as a as a person, as a as a as a sort of religious figure, but we don't accept any of his uh, leniency. So I am certainly aware of this type of um, uh, um, embrace, sort of partial embrace right. of the man.
0: Right. Right. So, uh, so you mentioned hall of Yisrael, the, the question, uh, the com- complex question of whether for dairy products to, to, to be, uh, I don't know if not kosher, but but appropriate for for consumption, certain aspects of the proce- process have to be handled by Jews, and Rab Moshe held at least that it was not a requirement where it would be unduly burdensome to only use uh, such dairy products. And in fact, in the people my age and younger who grew up in the neighborhood, remember that in the yeshiva and in the summer camps. Um, It was regular OU milk that was used. Um,
1: Not with the extra stringencies. Not
0: with the extra stringencies. So there are people in the yeshiva who want, want to respect that and maintain that. They're not going to suddenly say, because everybody else only has the more stringent standard, we're going to adopt that as well but they're also aware that most of the people who come into the yeshiva at this point do hold those stringencies and may not understand that the uh, more lenient standards are acceptable at MTJ as well. So the one photograph in the book is of a commercial cake that uh, that is kosher, but not Chol of Yisroel, on a table with handwritten notes next to it saying this cake is OU not Chol of Yisrael. enjoy <laughs> <laughs> right so they wanted to tell people but they also wanted to say it's it's kosher and, and and you're welcome you're welcome to have it um in some ways that's a losing battle because because the lower east side community has been shrinking somewhat and because the tone is set more by... Look, uh, you're a sociologist, Solomon. so it's not going to surprise you when I say that as an anthropologist, I noticed a long time ago that the more people want to be in a certain club or neighborhood, the more uh, exclusive it can be. So in these dynamic growing Orthodox communities, the tendency to stringency uh, has been and and is indulged more than on the Lower East Side. And I I, I think I think the Rosh Hashiva, Reb David Feinstein, I'm talking about now. My my Rosh Hashiva uh, was very aware of this and was trying hard at once to sustain his father's standards and legacy, and to respect and to make sure that M- the MTJ community was, was part of, of the larger centrist and, and Haredi uh, orthodox world. In, in, um, once in Shire, I remember, we were reading a Rashi, and he was talking about Rashi, and, and, and he said, you know, the real Frumis call him the Heiliger Rashi. <laughs>
1: Right. And he said, and we should
0: too. All
1: right. All right. So, but, so Rashi is is a commentator on the Talmud and the Frumis, the Frum is the ultra orthodox, the very right. orthodox.
0: Right. So so in other words, he was recognizing some you know, some then, distinction there, but saying That's fine. That's fine. That's that that, that that's great. That's great that, right. that 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 they have that attitude.
1: Right, they view Rashi, this uh, medieval commentator, as halig, as holy, yeah. Yeah. Uh, not just as an intellectual con- contributor to the the discourse. Right, and and
0: I'll will t- tell you another one, and then and then you or I can explain the term I'm using here. Um, I I I actually I kept going to this year, and I I mean, without the this damn COVID, I mean I would still be going to MTJ and I hope to, I really miss it. It wasn't just like a a year of field work and then, then I'm out of there. Uh, I love the place. I feel attached to it still. Um, But, um, but one time during that year, I think, we were studying the Tractate Geaton, which is about divorces. And there's a complex discussion of uh, a witness, one witness signed his name in Hebrew, and another witness signed his name in Greek. And Rashi has a discussion of what he thinks signing the name in Greek means. And I came in one morning, I had thought about it a lot, and I said to one of my study partners, You know, I think Rashi's wrong. And he said to me, You can't say Rashi's wrong. <laughs> 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 you can't say Rashi's wrong. Maybe he didn't know the Matthias.
1: Uh, he didn't know the facts on the ground. facts <laughs> on the ground.
0: But you can't say he's wrong. All right.
1: Well, so this goes to my previous question about sort of what are the boundaries of the discourse. And you That's mentioned right. this in the book right. that 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 there are boundaries. It's a very bounded uh, um, environment. Uh, and the discourse itself of the, the study of the Talmud or other... Uh, classical Jewish texts that that are being studied, there are boundaries to to you know just what kinds of questions could be asked, what kinds of questions are allowed, and yet the boundaries, uh, my sense is that they are uh, much more sort of expansive or or, or um, more freeing um, than they would be in a, a in a sort of typical Orthodox or ultra Orthodox yeshiva.
0: I think that's true. Um and I have to be very careful here both because I was always very careful about pushing them. I was more interested in learning what the rules are than trying to see what I could (laughs) get away. (laughs) Um, and, and partly because frankly, it's, it's fun to play within the rules if the rules give enough play. Um, but one of the things I noticed, and I have a I have an analysis at one point i hope I hope I explained it I'm not sure where <coughs> it was clear that clear that the relevant rule is ultimately all statements of rabbis of a certain stratum called the Tanayim, those are the rabbis whose statements are collected in the Mishnah and in other scattered dicta that were preserved, form a single system. So wherever possible, the rabbis of the Talmud and then the commentaries that build upon them will try to reconcile seeming contradictions. And I realized at one point that um, it would be very easy if you simply said, well, this one statement from that Tanaetic period that's quoted Simply disagrees. It's from a. It's from the same. It's from the same period, but it's a different tradition, where this whole issue was categorized differently. You know, and it's not a big problem. Um, when we discussed it, in I think it was the same topic. When I we discussed it in the She'er with the Rosh Hashiva. I spoke up, and I didn't speak up much, and often I wasn't heard. But I said, said, Rebbe, it seems very forced. And he said, it
1: is forced.
0: They want you to work really hard at it.
1: Right. so so he the Rosh Shiva didn't feel that the fact that the interpretation to reconcile these two seemingly contradictory statements from two different people during the same um, uh, period in history uh, the fact that you needed to work hard to 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 reconcile them that doesn't in any way uh Challenge the 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 authenticity or the truthfulness of the interpretation. It, it's it, I mean, it's 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 this odd phenomenon where
0: the 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 stronger is the unspoken shared assumption that you can lean on this tradition really hard, and it's not going to break. The more you can lean on it, um. I, and I'll give you another moment. Um, I don't know if this is unique to MTJ, but it was a treasured experience for me and, and really something that came up, didn't get into the book, partly because it happened after I'd basically finished the book. Um, we're studying the, uh, the tractate Midos, which is not about good character traits, but about the measurements of the temple. And there's a discussion of the big stones and the walls and the dimensions of the walls and so forth. And it's very hard to make it all kind of line up. And a group of us were preparing for for this year, three or four of us studying at a time. And I just stopped a second and I said, you know, what we're trying to do here is to, through talking, assemble a shared image in our separate heads of what the temple looked like we are trying to recreate the temple in our heads and the,
1: i was just extremely
0: moved by that what we're trying to do
1: right but but many times even if it's a more uh sort of mundane topic or a topic that se- that seemingly you know, should be you know, fairly straightforward. Like, if one ox scores another ox, it turns out that there's a tremendous possibility for all sorts of complications. And especially once you get into the different strata of the Talmud, so the text itself, then the sort of first-generation commentators, the second-generation commentators, third-generation commentators, it could be very hard to, as you say, make it all line up, uh, especially if you believe, as some Orthodox Jews do, that not only was the Bible, the Mishnah, which is an early rabbinic compilation, and the Talmud, which is... And a, 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 dis, a discussion and explication of the Mishnah, but even much, much later, uh, commentators going into the middle or early modern period were all written, quote unquote, with divine inspiration. Uh, when you put that type of 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 um, you know, viewpoint on all of these texts, then it really does become very, very difficult, if not impossible, to make them all reconcile in such a way where, as you said, you can't say Rashi was wrong, you can't say that e- even other more recent commentators were wrong. Then again, it's very could be very, very difficult to to make them all sort of line up in a way that's still logical.
0: And and at the same time, you mentioned some of the later commentators or. Mid, m- m- late medieval uh the, the tosafists right rashi's one of whom was at least literally was rashi's grandchildren grandson um enormously detailed and long commentaries this is for for people who have not seen a page of the standard edition of the printed talmud um there are there are folios with there are about three lines of text Surrounded by thousands of words in tiny print of commentary, um, raising uh, raising seeming inconsistencies between different portions of, the, of of this huge compendium called the Talmud that nobody would have ever thought of as problems until they were raised, and then going through uh, uh, I don't want to say somersaults, but 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 uh, going through rich intellectual exercises to resolve them. And sometimes it works, and sometimes it's very hard to understand. And, and when when Rabbi David Feinstein Zetzal, didn't understand it, he would say, we don't speak sp- the language of the Tosafists. If we, if we knew their language, we would understand this better. Uh, it's time to move on. He would struggle with it, but eventually he would say, it's time to move on. And at a certain point, he would say, uh, "This almost this is bittol right? To to obsess where you're not getting it is cheating you of the opportunity to keep learning new new things." Uh, so, I, I, so a certain so a certain degree of 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 humility and almost of, uh, rachmanas for for everybody else, right? Of of compassion for everybody. Everybody else in the group um, moderates that 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 attitude toward the Heiliger Rashi.
1: Right, and and I remember when I read one of the passages where you describe this uh, sort of attitude or procedure on the part of the Rosh Hashiva, where he would try as hard as possible to reconcile things, and then if it didn't go, he said, "Okay, you know, it's time to move on." I thought that that was really a profound kind of balancing. On the one hand, uh, trying to to uh, you know accept the, the holiness and the and the the sort of uh, validity of every aspect of the Talmud and all of the levels of commentators, and at the same time, being intellectually honest and saying, look, you know, he didn't say it explicitly, but it sort of implied, we might not be able to reconcile all of this. And let's not try to, you know, pretend that we could, because that would really be a disservice uh, uh, to our own intellects and our own... You know, exactly. Exactly.
0: capacity exactly, and, and 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 related to that, a, a somewhat different nuance is uh, his procedure as a teacher. Uh, his 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 son, Rabbi Mordy Feinstein, uh, said in his eulogy uh, last Sunday. Um, one thing which also I kind of wished I had put this in my book that. But it it rang so true. He said that when when his father taught his Talmud class, it was each time as if he himself were studying it for the first time. No way was it the first time. (laughs) But he wanted to he wanted to present the difficulties to to the class, not like show off. Here here I've got it now, and I'm going to tell you how to read this. We're going to struggle through this um, together, and that meant. First reading it, whatever the unit was, without any of the commentaries. Not bringing in the Rashi immediately, line by line. Learning the text itself, and then bringing in the Rashi, then bringing in the Tosos. So, um, to people who are familiar, you can say, oh, Rabbi David just taught a, 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 a shear with Rashi and Tosos. It wasn't it wasn't that simple. Uh, and that's why uh, one of my study partners um, said to me one day, people ask me why I've been sitting in in, in the Rosh Shir for so many years. And I tell them because I want to learn. I want to I want to I want to learn how to learn like the Rebbe learns. Hard to summarize
1: right right and speaking of of methods um i think it's really uh fascinating your, your book the kind of methodology that you use and the particular style um you know of of, of putting it all together and you you uh, note that um that you don't um, necessarily include. Uh, so it includes a lot of stories, a lot of very rich uh, details of your experiences at this yeshiva, studying in, uh, by yourself, studying in peers, studying in, in larger groups, studying with the rasha yeshiva, um, and, and what you know happened during that year and in other um, periods of time when you were spending time. Uh, uh, at this yeshiva, um, but you, uh, you yourself note that you don't always include an analysis or commentary that that would be common in anthropological works. Uh, why did you choose uh, to, to do it this way?
0: First of all, because I'm not as young an anthropologist as I once was. And look, with my previous book about the Lower East Side, uh, mornings at the Stanton Street Shul. Uh, one of my severest critics is a cousin and close friend who's a social psychologist. And since I started in this business, he has loved my, my work with, with Jewish memoirs, my ethnographies. He doesn't like it when I write critical theory. He finds it really pretentious and just sort of trying to, you know, make a name for myself. Uh, after he read my book about the Stanton Street School, he said, you know, the theory is there if you know what you're looking for. And I kind of hope to be at that stage where this is an intervention in anthropological discussions of the so-called split between the religious and, and the secular. And really trying to emphasize the ways in which um, I understood how they were talking, and I could talk that way too. And they understood how I was talking, and there, there, there were things I could bring in at the edges that did fit. In other words, emphasizing the overlap in the Venn diagram rather than the here are two worlds confronting each other. That's part of it. Part of it is um, I knew... From the time—I don't know—from the time I walked in, but from from the time where I thought, you know, I might I might write a book about this, that I would only do so if I felt I was writing a book that I could bring into the best madrash, that I could give to the people there. And part of that is what you say about them, what you don't say, and part of it is also writing it in a language that ordinary people can understand. You know, Zalman, when I, I mentioned at one point I was a lawyer and I went to law school and I had already published a fair amount of anthropology and critical theory when I went to law school. And in my first year in law school, I wrote a long paper actually about the, uh, the Kyrgyz Yol Supreme Court case, which was still fairly new then in the 1990s. And I wanted to publish it in, in, the, in, the, in the law journal. So I brought it to the writing teacher, the writing instructor at the law school. And a few days later, he gave it back to me. He had marked up the first couple pages. He said, I didn't have time to mark up the whole thing. But to paraphrase Jackie Mason, can't you write like a normal person? <laughs> <laughs> so I've been trying very hard since then, <laughs> you know, especially when I want normal people to read it to write like a normal person. And the last influence on the style I do mention it in the book is my hero Walter Benjamin, and that that uh, especially the parts of the book where it's 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 one brief anecdote with a title after another that are intended. To be a mosaic that that produce a composite portrait, um, that I got especially from Walter Benjamin.
1: Right, right. Well, one thing related to the style that was interesting to me is that uh, you often pre- uh, presented stories that either you said, "Well, it could it could be that uh, the person did this for this reason. It could be that the person did it for this reason. We're really, not sure, you know." And who? who cares which you know what the reason is and and then other times you would present a story and you wouldn't say the that last piece that i just said but it was obvious that it was an ambiguous story but it's really not clear you know does it mean this or does it mean that and and it's it, it seemed again that you you kind of took pleasure in uh, presenting stories that could be interpreted in multiple different ways
0: i i love that kind of story <laughs> I mean, you know, that's, that's, that's what most of the stories in the Talmud are like.
1: It's true. Well, well. speaking of which, it's interesting that as I was reading the, your book, and I, I took so much pleasure, I mean, it's a really fascinating, fascinating work. So thank you for, for, for birthing it to the, the world and sharing it with us. Um, as I was reading it, I kept on thinking, First, I thought, well, this is an anthropological work because you're an anthropologist. And then, as I kept on reading, and especially when you would have, you would describe a story where one speaker referenced a second speaker or a second person, you know. And it suddenly dawned on me this is a lot like the structure in the Talmud, where you have a statement from one rabbi and that rabbi quotes another rabbi. And I wondered if that was intentional. And then just before I let you answer, I I should say that sometimes in your in your work, uh, it seemed to me that we crossed over from the Talmud to Hasidut, to Hasidic stories. And there was a, one of my favorite pa- uh, um, moments in the book is where you describe a quote-unquote miracle where a piece of paper that was placed into a, a, a um, rabbinic text uh, supposedly disappeared. And then I thought, it sounds like this book is a work of Hasidic lore. So so what is it? Help us out here. What What's going on here?
0: Well actually my wife read the book and she said oh it's about you. <laughs> um as 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 my ethnographic writing usually is I'm I mean and since my first book I'm present in it I don't know how to write otherwise the the anthropologist is very much present and the anthropologist is the medium uh I think it's dishonest for the anthropologist not to be present in the ethnography in some way, although I'm, I may overdo it at certain point, points. When one of the reviewers for the Stanton Street Show book called it solipsistic. <laughs> That's a little harsh, but <laughs> I, I, I get that. Um, it, look, some stories about Roshi Yeshiva's about misnodic rabbis are not that different really, from stories about Hasidic rabbis also um, usually usually these are about things that look like miracles and create a sense of wonder but don't require a belief in the miraculous per se in the various uh, printed and recorded eulogies for reb david feinstein that have been coming out in the last few days uh one of them um, one of them quoted him as saying you know it sounds like people might think that what i say is going to happen happens or when i give a bracha a blessing the thing wished for happens that that's because nobody reads tells over the times it doesn't work out. <laughs> I mean, he said that himself, right? And the truth is, Zalman, a lot of the Hasidic rabbis would tell you that too, right? They, weren't ne- they didn't necessarily promote so much the idea that they had this special skill. When they were blessing people, they were encouraging them. They weren't saying, I've got the goods and I know what's going to happen necessarily, and, uh, you know, if there are Hasidic stories, why shouldn't there be uh, tales of them? My brother, my brother Daniel, says that this book should be called Tales of the Misnagdim.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm glad at least I wasn't totally off the mark. <laughs> right,
0: right. right. Okay. And look, and look um, there is more rapprochement between the Hasidic and the traditional yeshivish worlds. There, There, there aren't... Aren't these these deep walls anymore?
1: Right. And speaking of the Venn diagram and trying to find the soft spot, that you know where the different uh, uh, circles meet, um, it was interesting to me uh, towards uh, well throughout the book, but especially towards the end, you talk about this idea of Torah Lishmah, to learn Torah, quote unquote, for its own sake, and um, and you essentially end up arguing uh, 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 that it's possible to look at the at the yeshiva, um, uh, the, the studying that happens in the yeshiva, as an example of this um, uh, uh, studying for its own sake, and that this is in a way a kind of resistance to the neoliberal market forces that we think about that are, you know, uh, pervade our society, where even. Uh, in higher education, secular education, uh, so much of the thinking and motivation around pursuing um, a degree is, well, what, what can I get out of it? What could I get out of it? The utilitarian side of it. And that ironically, maybe to some people, the yeshiva, which may seem like such a, a, a foreign and um, um, you know just a totally different world that actually the kind of studying that they're doing there which is really not based on some kind of utilitarian outcome that they're hoping to achieve is a kind of resistance of all things to neoliberalism and i i, I thought that that was really um, just a fascinating take
0: yeah i mean look well we uh, i mean with any luck um, people will be arguing for years Over that claim, and I made in this book, and I'll be thinking about it more. Um, But I can amplify it a bit by saying that when I first spent time in the yeshiv in the 1980s, and I was uh, had just gotten my PhD, and I knew that academic job job prospects were were pretty dim. One of the things that attracted me about about it was that it was an alternative. intellectual, an, uh, an alternative space for intellectual discourse, where you didn't need a particular degree to participate, and where it wasn't a publish or perish situation. And to some extent, 30 years later, I'm saying the same thing. Um, and it Only now what I'm saying is it's not about production, and it's not about reaching, reaching the goal so that you so that you've now accumulated more and the idea i mean in 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 my more sentimental modes and maybe i was smart enough not to put this in the book um but i said to people in the best measures a couple of times i said you know now i understand why they say that if you're really really good in this life this is what you get to do in the world to come there are there are moments. Right. I'm not saying I'm not saying I don't get bored or sleepy or alienated when I'm sitting and learning with people for a few hours. But there are moments where the rest of the world falls away. And you're working together in this groove. Um, and it's like La Havdel being part of a jazz quartet that's just jamming really tight.
1: Uh, that, that, it does sound very enticing.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know, in some ways, I've, I've emphasized the enticing parts. I know that. But, but it's funny because you mentioned in the book that 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 the yeshiva um, that you you participated in doesn't really do much publicity. It doesn't really. I mean, there's a, a, a annual dinner, but it's really kind of a low key operation. They don't do much PR. And I thought as I was reading it maybe this is the PR for the yeshiva that, you know, anyone who reads it or many, not anyone, many people who read this might really be enticed uh, to, to participate and to try to uh, experience that intellectual bliss that you just mentioned.
0: We'll see. I mean, if they do, if they do, uh, I hope they find it. I hope yeah. they find it. And um and, 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 and also, with all due respect for the traditions that MTJ represents, I, I, I am obligated to say that these are opportunities uh, that should be available to Jewish women as well.
1: Right, right. As you uh, said, this is a all-male yeah. space. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, well, before I let you go, I always ask uh, guests uh, to talk a little bit about any uh, uh, thing that they're working on now or their next project, if they could share with us. So uh, uh, if yeah. you could share anything.
0: Yeah, actually, um, together with my son, Jonah, who is also a Yiddishist, and I'm pleased to say he's not a struggling academic. Uh but deeply loves Yiddish and Yiddishkeit and, and, and deeply committed to, to the welfare of Jews, especially in New York City. Uh, he and I have started working on translation of, I was going to say a volume, it's actually two volumes, published in Yiddish in 1923 and 1928, edited by a man named Mordecher Lipson, whom we don't know enough about yet. And it's called Die Welt der Zelt, which means we translated. People tell the story, and it's co- a collection of anecdotes about anshe shem, notable Jews, mostly in the 19th century. Mostly, but not all, rabbis. Mostly, but not all, in Eastern Europe. Mostly, but not all, religious figures. Uh, some of them actually anti-religious figures. There's a story about a famous. Uh, Apicorus in a certain town, a heretic, um, who, when he was dying, said, um, called his, his most loyal son over and said, look, I, I have you and one other son and a daughter, and your brother, he's converted to Christianity. There's no way he's going to say Kaddish, the memorial prayer, for me. Your daughter's, your your sister's a girl. She can't say Kaddish. So I implore, I am imploring you, son. Please, don't you say Kaddish for me either.
1: Wow. Well, that that really sounds like a, <laughs> an amazing story and a, a very a very <laughs> so typical. Collection.
0: That's atypical, but it gives you a sense of, of of how rich and complex and dynamic this world was, all compressed into these little one paragraph, one page anecdotes. So that's what we're working on now.
1: Wow, well, I very much look forward to, to seeing that when that comes out. Um, I want to thank you for taking the time to share your thoughts with us today. I really appreciate it. And, uh,
0: I, I, I've enjoyed the conversation, and um, it, it's really gratifying to me to to, um, to have a conversation that that is based on, on, on such a rich and generous reading of the book on your part. Thank you, Zalman.
1: Our pleasure. Uh, That concludes our program. Thanks for listening and have a great day.